You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger. Hey everybody, welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I am your host, J.D. Rieger. This week on the show, I'm talking to the musician and writer Chris Davis from Papa Top's West Coast Turnaround and, in a previous life, the Memphis Flyer. Let's get into it. Chris Davis, my friend, how are you doing? I'm good, J.D. Rager. Thanks for coming down here to do this. Happy to do it. Did you have to Did you have to pay to get in? I should have snuck you in. I, I did pay to get in, but it's okay. I'm, I'm happy to support stuff. I never think of little details like that. Like, it literally just occurred to me that I should have said, hey, this is guy, he's coming to be on the podcast. Nah, Let nah, 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 nah. It's good. It's good. And, you know, I'll take advantage of it while I'm here. I'll, I'll look around and check out all the booths and, you sure. know, buy something I don't need. Well, you're, you're generally a patron of the arts. Um, yes. <laughs> well, you bought my record anyway. <laughs> I'm patronizing. That's, that's all I care about. I'm patronizing. <laughs> well, I usually start these things at the beginning of where, you know, how I met somebody or whatever. And okay. for you, it's the Memphis Flyer. Yeah, I was there for like 25 years. Yeah, something else. I was, un- I mean, you. I was kind of there for 20 plus years, but I was, you know, I was never in the building. Right. You were up in it. I was all up in it, yeah. I, I did about everything. I mean, I, I was, I started out as the entire marketing department when the actual marketing department was on maternity leave. I worked as the receptionist. I sold classified ads, uh, um, helped to manage the uh, um, advertising department, and then eventually uh, I was liberated from all of that and started working as a full-time writer. I was a freelance writer the whole time I was doing all those other jobs. Sure. And then eventually just moved over to editorial was there for a very long time. And, and through the course of that, you covered, I mean, primarily, you did a lot of theater stuff. Oh, I, I covered the arts, generally. You did music. Yeah. And you also did political stuff. Well, and, and a lot of hard news. You know, it's it's funny, because everyone, like, says, oh, you know, Chris Davis, he was the theater critic. You know, my, my you know, I'll humble brag, my desk drawer full of awards. Um, there are some for that. There are several for that. But most of them are for things like investigative journalism, for disaster reporting. You've heard a desk drawer full of awards? I do. I have a whole lot of them. That's nice. Yeah. It's... I, have, I have no awards. Aww. I don't think I've got a trophy for anything since I was, you know, like on the uh, fourth grade baseball all-star team. I'll get you a trophy. Please. I need, I need a trophy. You, I'll get you a trophy. Spiritually. I feel like I need a trophy. Okay. You just you just wait. You know, Charlotte has a history of trophy building. She makes really nice ones. Really? So, yeah. One of these days when you least expect it. Or maybe a title to... belt. Uh, you know, I, I'm not trying. I'm not trying to beg for you know, try to you know, ask for my exactly my Christmas present. It's but. it's funny that you say that because I I was getting rid of like a bunch of T-shirts <laughs> and and I actually have a really nice T-shirt I think that may have come out when Shangri-La put out their um, the Memphis wrestling documentary yeah, and yeah. Uh, and the coinciding uh, LP that went with it <laughs> that is a T-shirt that has a title belt printed oh, yeah. on it. I, I sold a few but I never got one. Would you like one? 
I mean, sure. Yeah, I, that needs to go to a good home. I mean, if you never read the thing, it was in my. It was in my. You know, I, I don't know if everyone has these, but you know, you have a drawer or a, a, a container, something where you keep all your things that are too sweet to get rid of. You never actually wear. Oh yes, I have too many of those things. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is one of those because uh, I've worn it a lot, but then at some point I just stopped wearing it, but couldn't get rid of it. So it needed. It, needed to be with the right person and actually I can't think of anyone that's more the right person than, than you to have a type belt t-shirt. Uh, I'm touched by that. Yeah, it's coming your way. I don't want to leave the flyer thing too far behind because I'm curious, you know, obviously you haven't been there in how long now? I left in 2019. What got you out the game? Um, you know, it's it's just sort of hard to, to explain it, but I, I reached a point where I didn't have to be um, I didn't have to be at the grind um, full time. Um, I just wanted to be in a place where I could have a little bit more uh, freedom to kind of pursue the sorts of things I wanted to work on and not just be um, writing about the next thing coming down the pike. Um, and also, you know, um, and, and good for them, they're continuing to still put out a, a, a good product. There's still good writing that's happening there. But legacy media was just taking such a hit everywhere. And it just felt like, you know, if I didn't get out soon, downsizing was inevitable. Um, you know, especially when, regardless of the kind of work you're doing, you're regarded as the arts writer. I was kind of the last full-time arts writer in town. And the, when you put the word arts in front of writer, it means discount or disposable. And so... Um, that, that is just painful. That's one of those things that is painful to hear, but feels very true. Yeah, no, it, it, it completely is. Um, and so... Um, I've been there long enough to where I actually felt like I had job security, but there's only so many hits you can see a company take and not feel like you need to take charge of your own fate or, or somebody's going to take charge of it for you. And so I just wanted um, I wanted to be able to kind of do things on my own terms for a while. And so far it's been fine. It's been good. I've been, you know, going back to working as a on, on uh, fiction writing uh, in addition to other things. Something I always wanted to do, but when you're constantly writing, you know, about the next thing to come down the pike, there's just not time for it. Or when there is time for it, you're, it those muscles are tired. Yeah. So. So yeah, it was just it was just time. I'd been there a long time. Um, didn't really see uh, any major advancement in my future. So it was just time to go on and do something else. Did you ever feel that your efforts to cover the arts interfered in any way with your desire to participate in them? Yeah, I mean, I I think so. The thing is, is if there were if there were things that I really wanted to do, it never stopped me from doing them. Um, I would often take time off of work and go out of town to direct shows, uh, and not even go out of town. I would go back and um, did several uh, productions for. Uh, Rose College uh, before they decided to eliminate their theater department. Uh, and, and a lot of what I used to do, a lot of the um, performing arts things I used to do, I was 
able to kind of uh, pacify that by playing in bands, you know, um, making music kind of stood in lieu of doing a lot of the theater, and so, uh, and so it wasn't, <laughs> I'm sorry, there's so much going, there's so much activity, my, my attention span is just like, look over there, look over there. Yeah, um, I, I, that's why if I seem like I'm laser focused, it's because I'm trying not to be just, you know, distracted by like Ninja, Spider-Man, yeah, walking no, no, by. Exactly, so that's, if, if I'm a little scattered, it's because I really, I'm, it is, Ninja Spider-Man, Ninja Spider-Man. Yeah, literally. Oh, the Road Warriors, my friends, the posse, standing over here. Exactly. Looking menacing. <laughs> but, but, you know, coming back to your point, I do think that there were a lot of times that I felt like there was just a conflict of interest if I was too participatory in a lot of things. Um, that there needed to be some distance between the person who's observing and writing and, um, and the people who are, you know, making things. Um, and so, yeah, it was... It's probably better just to describe it as confusing. Um, I know I was confused by it, and I, I was just a freelancer. It was tough. It was tough for me. I, I legitimately felt like after a while, uh, covering the Memphis music scene was sort of poisoning the well for me. I can understand that, and and you know, um, I still had to do it um, quite a bit. But when I first started out, I did a lot of music writing, and I continued. You know, I was constantly begging. I want to do less of this. I want to do less of it, less of it, less of it, because I wanted to still be able to really just enjoy something in a pure way. Um, not that you can't enjoy the things, you, you kind of need to enjoy the things you're writing about and criticizing, but the more it's your job, the less you're able to just kind of enjoy it in that pure, yeah. in, in kind of a pure way. And, you know, I kind of wanted the, the music to stay just something I did because I loved it and not something I did because it was part of who I you know part of your career part, agenda part of my career agenda yeah yeah um, but, but you know the thing is that that's something that's been I think instilled in us through a lot of really bad narratives about um, objective journalism because the reality is that artists have been critics since as long as there have been artists and critics and there have been like you know periods in time where all the major critics were also artists and if we didn't have one we wouldn't have the other and um, you know, one of my big beats when I was at the Flyer was also, you know, media and media history, or, or uh, media journalism, and just our whole notions of, like, where the concept of objectivity in journalism comes from are all just false. It's, it's, a, it's not, uh, it doesn't come from some kind of ethical, journalistic place. It actually comes from marketing and selling. It was like when the printing presses started to be able to print more papers, at that time, um, most journals and, and newspapers, they were like heavily biased, you know, in one direction or another, but they realized that the more biased they were, the more they were limiting their um, potential sales. So the concept of objective um, journalism was to move more papers, not to present better news or better facts. Um, it's interesting that it's gone completely the other way. That now everyone fills their specific point of view niche. There's no like both sides of it to appeal to everybody. Right. Well, that was that was talk radio and um, the advent of cable news because yeah. when it was just network news, in, in order to have like you know a market share, you had to have you know millions and millions and millions of viewers. Well, when cable came online, um, it started fracturing that market, and you could actually be considered to be a success um, by. 
defining these niche audiences. So, so that's you know where where all of that starts. And with uh, online journalism, you can just kind of go shopping for the thing that fits you. Yeah. Yeah. So where would you like? see, you know, uh, you're like, you see articles from, you know, various news outlets scrolling through your feed probably constantly. Yeah. What do you, what do you, I mean, (laughs) what's your take? I mean, Memphis media is a lot different even now, like from when you quit like three years ago, four years ago. Oh yeah. Well, it it is. Um, I'm, I'm impressed that, um, the uh, uh, commercial appeal is actually still even uh, thing. Um, you know, I think uh, it's a very different thing. It is a very different thing. Um, you know, I have to, you know, sort of stand back and say rumors of its death, which I helped to spread, um, were probably uh, um, greatly exaggerated. But, but realistically, you know, I, I, when I was writing about that, it was. Um, really seemed imminent and it still does you know these large financial firms who have no history or you know investment in um, in the information economy you know they're only interested in the bottom line they come in they sell all the properties they sell the printing presses and all of that happened to the CA they had no more physical assets left um, but you know they're still producing um, good journalism I think the whole um, the center for um, public service reporting at the University of Memphis, now that they have gone independent and are no longer connected to the Daily Memphian, I think that that's a really good thing because, you know, going through this commercial outlet, the the biggest bias in journalism isn't political, it's economic, and so, like, not having this kind of economic gatekeeping um, endeavor, um, even though they're not for profit. Because they they couldn't put something out that made the Daily Memphian just look like absolute horseshit. If the Daily Memphian was sponsored. Oh, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that sort of thing. You know, the, um, the advent of ML, you know, uh, what Wendy Thomas has done to build MLK 50 uh, and her partnership with ProPublica, that's huge. And they, you know, what they've done has been change making. And so, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of bad. The, you know, the real problem is, is that is that we all kind of exist in our own universe of, of facts that we believe in and rather than actually trying to consume the best information possible, everyone goes looking for the information that that suits them or, or you know confirms what they you know yeah. the bias confirmation. And that's a real problem. We don't have and I'm not a I'm not a nostalgic person. I don't, you know, think, you know, tomorrow will never be as good as yesterday. But we don't have that Walter Cronkite character that, you know, we had you know part of the 70s that regardless of what you believe, you trusted that guy. You might not agree with him, but you kind of trusted that he was being level with you before. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's there's almost no trust in media yeah. across the board. Yeah. I had no idea we were gonna talk about this. I was I, I didn't I didn't bring my A game on, That's on fine. media. I'm, you know I wanna ask you because you, you mentioned uh, uh, object, objectivity in journalism. I have been accused recently a few different times of being an unethical journalist. What? Yeah, yeah. Well, what, 
Okay. Well, I mean, how much cash are you taking? Uh, well, I mean, now I'm taking some, but uh, <laughs> you know, you know, I wrote an article about wrestling for the Daily Ruffian. Yeah, and, um, some of the and, and now months later, after that article came out, I was hired by one of those companies that I wrote about, and now work with them. And some of the rival companies have, you know, accused me directly, like you know, on social media of being, you know, a spy, uh, unethical journalist, uh, you know, out to out to sabotage all the other companies. Okay, yeah, but how much of that is like really? How much of that is you know, uh, kayfabe? How much of that is just bringing the heat? You know, isn't that, isn't that what a wrestling I company is supposed know. to do? Yeah, I, I mean. The reason why I have fun in the wrestling business is because I honestly I, don't ever really know. If I had a wrestling company and you had, you know, pulled that stunt, I'd be calling you a dog too. But but I'd be doing it like loudly and colorfully, and I'd be making the most of it. But mm. but you would also know backstage. over DMs is not really. Yeah, you would you would know in the DMs that yeah that, yeah that would just mess. I mean, I'm getting I've got publicly you know like whatever semi playfully called out too, but um, yeah, over the DMs is where is where it hurts. Well, here's the thing you were working very hard to just you know find um to find a place in legacy media for a wrestling column that's yeah. that's what you wanted to do you you would on your your first go round, you would have liked to have had the daily memphian or the memphis flyer the commercial appeal or or somewhere um mlk 50 seems like an unlikely place for a, a, a wrestling column but you wanted some you know traditional platform for the column and that didn't pan out so you went and got a job. I mean, that's that that's, is that that's, is that is the story, my man. That's not that's not um, unethical at all. That's a modern journalism because, as you know, layoffs are the order of the day. People who work in journalism still have to have jobs. You know, you get laid off at the CA, you go and you know you do uh, internal communications for St. Jude or whatever. The the um, the door from hack to flack is wide open. <laughs>
so yeah, I mean, it's it's possible and even likely I'll do it again. Um, would you go to the? Would it be with the flyer, or would you just do your, you know, start your own Substack? What do you, what do you, what would you think? <laughs> um, you know, I, I would be a, a gun for hire. Uh, whoever wanted to hire me, I've actually talked to Sheriff Clark, who's the new editor at the uh, flyer. Yeah, yeah, she seems cool. I worked with her for a long time. Um, she she took the same kind of path with that company that I did, where she also started doing anything and everything while whispering in people's ears. You know, I write, um, and now I'm really happy. You know, it's been um, that chair, the flyer has been occupied by um, middle-aged white men for a long time. It's time, you know, that yeah. that you know that that changed. And we've talked a little bit. She's always like left a, an open door if I wanted to contact her about doing um, like back page stuff or yeah. whatever. And there's just you know. Um, I'm out of the habit. That's the thing, you know. I'm, I'm into the habit of writing other things, but you know, part of being a journalist is like it's it's a habit. And it, the first year or so, every time something happened, I felt like I had to be right on top of it because I got to write about it. And it actually was preventing me from relaxing or enjoying not having to do things because I felt like I still had to. Yeah. So the time spent like breaking that habit just got me out of the habit. So. So yeah, it's uh, I'll, I'll do it again at some point, and you know, at, at some point people may want to stop seeing my byline, but but I'm not gonna, you know, I wouldn't bet on that. Have you been playing a lot of music? Off and on. Um, yeah. Also, we sort of stopped playing for a while when the world went crazy, but we've been doing a lot more of it. We being um, Papa Top's West Coast Turnaround, the most awkwardly named band in the city. But do you go by Papa Top? You know, were it my choice, we'd go by the West Coast Turnaround. You would lose the. We wouldn't really lose the pop. Well, the thing is, you know, Papa Top was supposedly our, you know, in the early days of founding, this was our fictional manager. Papa Top was our Arnold Tom, which is why, which is why it's a possessive apostrophe. He was your Malcolm McLaren. Yes, Papa Top's West Coast turnaround. But then that, I mean, I think people would just naturally assume though that it's you because you're up there. Well, well, yeah, but I mean, but honestly, in the early days, I really thought I was going to kind of assume that role and be more hype man and. Um, kind of fade out of the front man position is it, it, it came together as a bunch of uh, as, as kind of a, a drinking club with a little country music problem and we just wanted there to be some band in town that played the, the kind of old honky tonk that we all loved but weren't getting enough of the, the high tone had just opened on Poplar and they were starting to bring in you know it was much more um, Americana I hate using the word Americana it was like a swing place at, at yeah. one time and then they and then it, yeah and then it was sort of more Americana before they opened the floodgates to punk rock and to, all that to stuff. everything. Well it was always um, a mix but Dave Orson when he opened it I think his focus was more on um, artists who were working in some kind of um, traditional field whether yeah. it was swing um, your bluff city black backsliders yeah exactly that, that sort of thing sure um, and um, you know uh, Dale Watson was coming to do now has who now runs or owns 
was a co-owner, I guess, of Fernando's Highway. I, I can't remember exactly. I still haven't been there. Oh man, they've done such a great job revamping that place. It sounds fantastic. It's it's still my I favorite. I to check story. it out. For some reason, it feels far away to me, but I know it's not that far. No, I mean it's it's you know it's out by Graceland. Yeah. Um, so you know, for me, it's. You know, just a few minutes on the interstate, and I live on the north side of downtown, so... I know where you live, fool. I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I love that spot. Um, and we, we played there uh, some recently. Um, but, but, you know, Dale was still just... He was based out of Austin at that time. He was coming through regularly. Folks like Johnny Dilts, who I don't know if people know, Rosie Flores, all those people. And there just weren't bands in town that fit with them to play with them. And... Um, I'm, I say I don't get nostalgic. I'm actually a little nostalgic right now because we had a practice this week, uh, and we realized that next year's our 25th anniversary. I figured you guys were the kind of band that like maybe almost never practices. You guys just show up and like bash through, and you know, um, most of the time you would be correct. I mean, I, and I mean that in the best way, in the most you know Alex Chilton, you know Memphisy sort of way. Like, yeah. but you know, because you guys are all pros, you know these songs. We do. We have we kind of like the, the Buck Owens plug in and play yeah. um, ethos. But every now and then we like to learn some new stuff, um, and occasionally like add, you know, add either a, a classic cover or a new original to set we have to get together. We're playing um we're playing a benefit um this next Sunday, which I don't know if this will air before or after that. It's it's that is what you say. It's yeah it is. It's it's Sunday, April 15th if this gets out in advance of that. I'll, but I'll do my best. It's called uh I think it's called Dolly Parton with an emphasis on art. And it's a it's a benefit for the family of Shane Gower. And, oh, okay. Yeah, and so like 35 artists have contributed like all Dolly Parton themed art, and we're playing, and the Tennessee Strangers are playing, and so they wanted. Are you going to do Dolly covers? Of well, course. We're going to do we're going to do two Dolly covers and one old uh, Dolly Porter, Dolly Parton Porter Wagner duet. So I will always love you at nine to five. Oh, I'm just kidding. No. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're doing, um, you know, the one that everybody knows. It was everybody's favorite if teardrops were pennies and heartaches were gold. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, here you come again. And, uh, and of course, Jolene. Because I, um, I, I think you have to do Jolene. You do. But the thing is, is like, you, and you sing it downtown? In the, I, don't, I, I don't sing that. To, you don't sing that? No, I sing, I sing the Porter part on the duet, but okay. Faith Wallace sings the, the Dolly song. Sorry, I don't no, I'm a bad. I'm, I know. I'm a bad. I'm a bad player. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like, um, we're, we're old school. We have a boy singer and a girl singer. I feel like, I mean, it's been so long since I've seen you. I don't, I thought it was just you, like, the one, the time I saw, the last time I've seen the West Coast Turnaround. Well, it, it occasionally is. And, and, you know, and the funny thing is we, you know, as we talked about this, you know, 25th year, not realizing we had a big anniversary coming up, because our first show was, was the Shangri-La 10th anniversary bash in the parking lot of Shangri-La. You should play at Shangri-La. For the well, we should we should do something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all, all I know is that we, this kind of like occurred to us, and then we were we were talking about like a show with everybody who has played with us, and like over the years, um, 
it, it's like just this enormous cast of characters. I, I, I'm sure Pez still has us beat, um, but we've got to be coming in a, a, a hot second um, as far as at yeah. least on bass players. Pez probably has you beat. Uh, we've we've Baker Yates has been playing with us for a long time, but we went through bass players um, pretty pretty heavily for a while there too. Um, but then we just have lots of ringers because. Um, I know Whittemore has been with you. He's been with us from the beginning. John Stivers, um, you know, probably best known from Impala. He's been with us from the beginning. But because sometimes, you know, Whittemore, uh, John, why am I not in your band? Whittemore plays in everybody's band. So sometimes, oh, he's on my new record, too. Yeah, of course. So are you, though, in yeah. fairness. And he should be because he's, like, great at everything. But Are you guys on the same song? No. But, but sometimes, you know, there are date conflicts. So we've, you know, had a million, not a million, we've had several people setting it on steel, several people, you know, setting it on guitar for a while. Who else even plays steel besides Whittemore? I don't even know. Oh, there's a, um, a great player. Uh, we, we played a gig out of this place on... Uh, um, not that in, I'm looking to replace him as the guy Mil I call for steel. Millington called Kickstart. It is a roadhouse, and it's a, it's a nice, you know, I mean, it, if what you're looking for is a bar, mm -hmm. it's, you know, Kickstart will scratch that itch. And... Um, we played out there recently with uh, one of the best in town, a guy named Michael Rose. Mike, Michael is another one of those guys who plays everything. Um, but he toured, uh, he toured with Wayne the Train Hancock for a while, and uh, Whittemore couldn't make that gig. Um, and so we called Michael to play with us. Kevin Cubbins plays a little steel. Eric Lewis plays steel. Eric's, Eric's almost never in town. I know I've seen Cubbins play lap steel. He probably plays pedal steel, too. Yeah. He's, he's a, one of those guys that can play... Anything guitar-ish. Yeah, so there's more folks than, than you, you think out there doing it. Yeah. Yeah. But you got but you got the best one. Oh, oh, oh. Sure. <laughs> we absolutely have the best one. I want to revisit, before I let you go, things are about to get weird with the costume contest, so that may prevent us from being able to continue talking. I guess we'll see how that goes. We'll play it by ear. We'll see how distracted So I'm get. just going to get this in real quick, but just in case. Uh, we got to talk about the Bowling Green thing. Oh, sure. Yeah, well, I mean, what? <laughs> it was a fun project. I mean, let's revisit the project. Like, uh, for those who don't know, uh, you know, in the nutshell, Donald Trump says the stupid thing about the Bowling Green tragedy. It, it wasn't, um, it wasn't Trump. It was, um, oh, who was it? Kellyanne Conway. Okay. Who was, I guess, his um, comms director at the time. Um, was, you know, just started repeating all of this misinformation about there having been, um, uh, a massacre in uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky, and she was called out on it on, and, and you know on a number of occasions. And even though she was called out, on, she just kept doubling down on. And so it's, was was she thinking of something else? I mean, what was? Did we ever figure that out? There's there's no uh, there's still never been a good um, explanation for this other than other than this is really the moment where the concept of alternative facts you know foments. It's where it's yeah. where that idea really solidifies in people's minds. Is it, you know, where when when reality isn't on your side, create another reality. Yeah. And um, and so it, it was. Uh, um, and she just doubled down on it over and over again after being, you know, called out on it. So there was no way at that point that she didn't know that this thing never happened. And um, and. 
and people were just joking about it all the time online. There were, you know, a million jokes, and, and I just... This is sort of where I came into it. Like, I started noticing, like, the, what the memes and the jokes about yeah. it. And then you had this idea to do a benefit show. Well, it started out as a joke, you know. I just made this, you know, I was just joining in with a throng of people, like, we should do uh, a benefit for the victims of the Bowling Green Massacre. <laughs> and immediately, it was just, like, flooded with all of these people, a lot of them at least a little bit talented. <laughs> I was one of them. You were one of them. You were like, like, no, we absolutely need to do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I it appealed to the, like, you know, the whatever, P.T. Barnum or whatever <laughs> in me that likes a goofy idea for a show. Yeah. No, as far as I knew, I was I was making a, an, an offhand joke on social media, and the next thing I knew, I was organizing um, a big benefit that, that, while we claimed it was a benefit for the, the um, you know, the victims of the Bowling Green Massacre, the money actually went to, um, you know, Mid-South Peace and Justice, so it actually was for um, a good cause, and it just brought together this amazing crew of, uh, of musicians, of comedians, of um, artists. Yeah, the, the connection between that and the table you see in front of you, Back to the Light, like, you know, it was the first time I played with Jeremy, it was one of the one of the first times I ever played with Graham, Justice is in my band now because of that. So, like, yes, I mean, there's a whole world of creativity, like, the, this Bear Grease album right. came together because Graham and Jeremy bonded at Bowling Right. So, like, there's so much of, like, my whole world that wouldn't yeah. even exist because of it. Like, and I know we, like, the show right, kind of so went, like, kind of comically uh, awry. What'd you say? Well, you know, it's... Uh, I have mixed right, feelings about it. I got too drunk and then I got too pissed off. So by the end of it, I was just like, I was seeing red and furious and like, just like playing sloppy and mad in like the punk and But actually, I think that made it, in some ways, I think that made it really good because, you know, everything about it went as well as it could possibly go with one key exception. The sound was just terrible. Oh, and the children's birthday party during while we were like trying to set up. Yeah, no, and then the, the venue, the venue, and the NCAA, so the insistence place. on watching the NCAA Nine tournament during our show. Yeah, no, the venue, which will go unnamed, yeah. offered us the moon and delivered us a very small, right. like, First piece of shit, yeah, on, on, shit a, on a platter. Be because when we, you know, they're trying to charge us for water. I had a for bunch of places that were interested in hosting this show, and and then I was contacted by this venue that seemed like a really good plan, and they really wanted to do it, and we're like, oh, yeah. You know, whatever you want, whatever you need, we'll help you promote it. And then none of that happened. Um, and you know, and then there was. We're gonna book a children's birthday party during your sound check. <laughs> right. And there was, a, you know, an act booked after us. So, so suddenly that was like literally like staring us down at the end, like looking at the watch, going, guys. Yeah. But you know, the thing about that is that's the sort of thing that takes a band and turns them into a gang. You know, that's you know sort of what you, it felt like. You create this kind of once you have a common enemy, you. You, you just kind of come Walker together, and at that point, the venue was against us. The, um, you know, the, and, and, and I am, you know, while you don't have to be an asshole about it, I'm sympathetic to the act that's booked afterwards. That, that really, yeah. that's really not Check that person's out. fault. That's the venue's fault. Totally. totally. Um, I, I was, 
was actually a It was the sound guy who came up to me and was giving me the, the I'm pointing at my arm where a watch would be. Was giving me like the sweat. That the actual person did not give me any grief at all. Yeah. Yeah. So so but, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, that, that actually took this kind of ad hoc band. That it worked pretty hard. Also just this loose conglomeration of, of weirdos from different parts of the music scene that in some ways just might not make any sense at all objectively, but yeah. somehow made sense in this context and worked really well. And we had we had a great okay, so combi- we had combination. A good Everything else falls into place. Yeah, that, that helps a lot. We had a great bass player, we had a great drummer, we had, we had you know, uh, um, interesting, interesting guests, um, and most importantly, the combination of, of fake original songs about the Bowling Green Massacre. Oh, yes. Oh, my song is so ludicrous. Oh, I love that song. That song is so good. Uh, Rolling Green for Bowling Green. That was fantastic. Well, thank you. Um, I, I, I actually still get that line stuck in my, my head sometimes. But the fact that we took, you know, popular songs that had protest edges from them that people would know and mixed them with these fake, you know, yeah. wow. protest songs. We did I Want to Destroy You. I remember we did uh, the Everly Brothers song, Bowling Green. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Big Star, Don't Lie to Me. Um, um, Joe South's uh, Games People Play. Um, oh, I want to talk about then, my belt. So this one's for sale. L, what was the, L, the song we did with here. LD? Uh, you don't own? No. What, what did we do? Oh, uh, he wrote a song called The Apocalypse Is My Boyfriend. Okay. LD Bechtel from the Flare Acoustic League, who also um, sang it, all over uh, the Magnetic okay. Field 69 love songs. I thought we did a cover with him, There's too, but maybe we didn't. And it is for sale. Um, right over here. Oh, he, he right, hit next, me and it felt, I thought we talked about think, doing that. I think, Did we think maybe that? he hit me and it felt and like a kiss. Uh, but I can't remember if that one actually... Did we actually end up doing it? Because I know we talked about it. Yeah, I can't. Like right now, my memory is fuzzy because this was still in my pretty heavy drinking days. But, and we, but we did do um, um, the one you really love, the magnetic feel song, yeah. which Ooh, which he's because he changed the key in, and I, I didn't even know it anymore. Thank you, Jonathan. We played it in the same key, didn't we? Yeah. No, we, I learned it in a different key. Yeah. We enjoined us at the end, and it was nice. It was nice. Um, no, that was that was fun because you know he never he never played. Magnetic field songs, yeah. not with the magnetic field. So that was that really, was, yeah. That was Heck a, yes. Well, I'm gonna say never, but he very rarely did. And it partly was, you know, he wanted to distinguish himself and his own solo career from, you know, the things. Great yeah. stage presence. Uh, he, he kind of made peace with he should use this thing that people know. Awesome. But for Thanks, a while, guys. you know, he was like, I wrote great songs Stand too, but you only know. Um, the way you say goodnight or all my little words. Yeah. yeah. Which they, I saw them, one of the, maybe the last show I saw in Chicago before I moved back was Magnetic Fields all right. at uh, City Marissa, Winery. And when they played that, I definitely thought, you know, I thought about him and thought about Bowling Green. Yeah. Yeah. I, I miss, I miss uh, my Uncle LD a yeah. lot. I was, I was really grateful to get to hang, you know, we only hung out at that show and he insisted on he called me like rock boy all night or something 
he was he was so Are he was so here? thrilled to be a part of it because okay. you know he he, he had rock a, boy he had an interesting way of going about things backwards you know moved to Memphis to be an artist and graphic designer and then moved to New York to be a musician um, yeah. when, when he was here he never really participated in any kind of music at all but he always kind of had this you know kind of unfulfilled desire to be a part of the Memphis rock boy scene so that was like this great fulfillment of this uh, you know yeah, so I remember make, him pitting. He had made some sort of like corsages or something for everyone, like these flowers yeah. and like a, with a little button on it. Wow! And he was pinning it on me. That's, yeah. that's my that's my that's my main memory of Aldi. And also did all that great all right, can design I get work for the, oh, the, yeah, the yeah. buttons and the t-shirts. All that the, stuff is cool. I've got one of the buttons on my guitar strap still. Yeah, no, I'm I, I am <laughs> for all the problems with the sound that made it so frustrating. Um, at well, times. we did have like 20 guitars on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, and that's fair, and a, and a lot of vocal mics. I mean, it, yeah. We we didn't make it easy. Um, I remember being as like uh, Alex Green hadn't practiced with us or anything like that, and we got there, and it's like there he is, like pra- he's like having his own little practice by himself on stage. Just like, well, another guitar, just what we need. Yeah, but 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 he came in and uh, oh, he killed. He was fine. He killed it. We did Good News Week, and right there that day, we changed it. From just the regular, you know, the regular arrangement to this oh, to this wow. version that started out, out. So can you tell me uh, like the the traditional arrangement for Good News Week that turned into some kind of Sex Pistols rave up. It, it wound up uh, actually. Yeah, I barely even remember that. Oh, that was that was one of my favorite developments of the show because Alex he had originally been in town and had been a part of some of the early planning, and then he wound up going out on tour. Maybe he went to Europe. I can't remember if he went to Europe or not. He, he went out on tour with somebody. He need he needed some work and took. Some work. Huh. And so he had just gotten back in town, like maybe that day. Um, and we had talked about, you know, if, if you don't feel comfortable you know, coming back, he just wanted to do it. And so, yeah, he showed up and got the bro. He can do anything. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm perpetually impressed by Alex Green and the things that he does. Oh, yeah. And he's doing a great job as the uh, music. music writer for the Memphis yeah. Flyer. Really, really one of my favorites uh, in the whole time I've been sure I, I tried okay, to uh, you know of course I wanted that job right. for myself so, and uh, so it's kind of a bummer it was a bummer right, at the so time but uh, in hindsight it feels oh, like guess, it was uh, you know it feels the, um, now I can see that it was the correct thing to happen for everyone's life but at the time it was also one of the main reasons I moved to Chicago completely understandable yeah yeah you would have also been great in that position but but I have you know no complaints with the work that he's done. Yeah, me neither. I mean, and if only because, you know, he writes very nice things about me, so... And I couldn't write them about myself if I was there, so... Well, you know, I couldn't Joe Boone it. No, ooh, deep deep cut. Battlestar Galactica, but... You bring it back to like the you know was it was it awkward like working as a, as a creator? I'm totally kidding, Joe. And if you hear this, I know you won't. But. And as a journalist, it was really frustrating because um, a lot of times I would be doing um, doing you know interesting work, not necessarily with the band, but with like other you know gangs of artists or, or you know performers and doing stuff. And I couldn't write about myself either, and there was nobody else to do it, so that stuff just went undocumented. Yeah. And, you know, I guess part of the, the, it's like the deal you strike, kind of. I mean, you know, if you're going to, I always knew that it, like, it was going to, like, I wasn't going to get a cover story, you know, or what, or the lead review or anything like that. I always knew that because it would look bad. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, I, I, that, that was actually probably the, the toughest part of it sometimes. And, and, you know, the other thing is, though, it was a rule that never seemed hard and fast, you know, because it seemed like... I'm tearing up. Okay. I'm not even going to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're going to get into weird territory right, if we keep uh, going. Get David ourselves unhireable. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't really have yeah. any sour grapes about it. I only care. I don't want to I only have lingering confusion. Yeah, yeah. No, that's the best way to go if you can do it. Excited up there. Yeah. What have, is that character? That's. I don't know. He's some kind of. He's got anime hair. Yeah, yeah. So some anime character, but no, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, yeah. I did. I did. Uh, I, I, I probably qualify as a nerd in some departments, but I'm not a good one. Yeah, you're a comic comic book nerd, I guess. Would you say that? I, I know you. I know you, I keep up with your wow, okay. assessments. Your reviews of comic book movies glad. often lead me to deciding whether or not I'm going to watch it or not. <laughs> oh well, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I, I trust your judgment. I call myself more of a fanboy than a nerd. I'm not, I'm not a completist, but I, I never, I never stopped reading them. So, so yeah. I had a run with them, you know, when I was a teenager. But uh, for whatever reason, somebody sold my comic books at, uh, against my will. Um, that would have been my grandmother. And so I, I, never, I was never able to get back into it. Yeah, I, I stopped. Well, I say I, I never stopped. I stopped so for a long time um, in my adulthood. And then when uh, um, when digital comics became a thing, and they basically, how do you collect a digital comic? Well, you you don't. I, I have a subscription. So you just enjoy them. I have subscriptions where you know. Um, I say that like that's not enough. So it's you like, just, so you only enjoy. It. So I only you enjoy. You don't actually it. get to hoard it. Also. <laughs> No, but I do pick and choose. Like you know, I'll have a ni- you know a nice edition of this, a nice edition of that. But yeah. but for the most part, because I have you know I, I do have you know, tendencies to pile stuff up, like the T-shirts I was talking to you earlier. It's healthier for me to like enjoy these things in in the digital format. Yeah. Because otherwise, I would have to build an edition on the house. Do you still collect? Mu- do you do music that way? Um, I, it's, it's a mix, you know. Um, I, I go out and buy um, records pretty regularly, um, but a lot of times the things that I choose to own in some kind of physical copy are um, related to or local artists or people I know, people I very specifically want to um, support, um, or things that are, are you having fun? maybe off. Yeah. Like, awesome. like I've had this thing for like French music fun? or yeah, yeah. yeah I, I don't even know how you say it, but like, like '60s These French pop. A lot of it. A lot of it. Um, women. Not. It's not exclusively that. Because I like guess that cover of uh, Paint It Black that they always use in movies. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I love that, yeah. but but you know uh, it's been used. Yeah, it's been used. It's been used plenty. Oh my God! What, what's the I cover? There's a, a different ones. cover. I'm gonna forget the artist, but it's um, an, a cover of an old soul song called "Busy Signal" I that I guess got used in. Um, I don't what was that series about playing chess? It was a big deal on that. Oh so. yeah, yeah. I actually, that's it's one that I actually did watch. Queen's Gambit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, um, I heard, uh, 
I heard this 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 one song and that it was a, clearly a French song from that era that I looked up because it just blew, it just blew me away and hadn't realized that that was a cover of an old uh, an old soul song called Busy Signal. Huh. I don't know that song. Now now I want that single. I want the I want the, the OG. Yeah. Yeah yeah. So I'll, I'll I'll look for that in the uh, through the swaths of 45s that get dropped off at Trigger Lock. So so yeah if it's if it's something like you know off the beaten path or you know people that I know or just yeah. some oddity or rarity Those I mostly collect music by people I know because honestly that's most of what I listen to I mean there's exceptions of course I mean I yeah. listen to the Beatles and whoever else um, but friend rock is one of my you know biggest genres well mine too mine too and and you know if you gotta buy product you gotta buy merch because you know people have to have you know they gotta Amen, they gotta put food on their families and uh, <laughs> and I want to be here for that but again if I just you know let myself go wild I would you know in addition to having to build an addition would go broke yeah um, so it's it's pick and choose and that's the priority friend rock first I'm with that yeah what are you going to be doing, friend? What do you you said you're working on some fiction? Do you have a plan? Are you putting out a book? Are you doing short stories? Are you uh, a, no- a novella, perchance? <laughs> I have, well, in fact, I do have a novella. <laughs> Um, but it's part of a, col- uh, a collection that's short stories in one novella. And before doing anything with it, I've been spending a long... Uh, uh, I started in January. I've been submitting uh, individual stories to literary journals, uh, hoping to get some published in some literary journals. So basically, I've been collecting rejection letters. But they're very high-tier rejection letters and from some very like, nice, elite places. So oh, that's nice. At least, at least they're getting back to you, honestly. Yeah. There, there are places that a lot of it's been encouraged, as encouraging as rejections can be. And the thing about this is, is I sometimes feel like when you're doing this, it's it's like throwing, I don't know, throwing darts at a roulette wheel. Is that a metaphor? I don't know. As someone who has just uh, tried to like run uh, promotional campaigns for a couple of records Man, that I just put I out, watch I know exactly what you mean. You know, just throwing a bunch. You know, you got to cast a lot of nets, right. and then you know maybe you get one tug over here. And you know. The, when you get when you get high tier, you know the, the high tier. That's when they actually show interest in your work and actively solicit to see more work. And but it will be like you know we just don't feel like this this piece. I love your shirt, man. And yeah. that's that's the thing, you know. Um, you have to figure out which piece fits where, and sometimes that's just really arbitrary and it's you know frustrating. And so you know the goal I set for myself. Um, I don't usually do New Year's resolutions, mm-hmm. but um, um, at the end of December, I decided I wanted to, you know, give myself a year to move um, some of these stories, and then if I couldn't, then I'd start working on the whole collection. But you know, my goal is to collect a hundred rejections. Wow. Yeah. Before you then allow yourself to like self-publish it or something like that. Yeah. Well, or or just try shopping it around as as a complete collection because there's still gotcha. so much that's left on the table because some of these you know some of these stories don't fit any kind of regular format so there's not really you know they belong in a collection they don't necessarily belong on their own and you know novellas are kind of hard to move because what are they are they a, are they a short story are they a novel you know it's yeah. so it kind of needs to be a group. But 
but um, but yeah, the the goal wasn't I'm going to sell these. The goal was um, I'm trying to remember who it was that gave me. Some, it's not an original idea. Someone gave me the idea of you know shoot for 100 rejections, and I said I, I love that. Um, and I, I sent out a, a hundred uh, yeah, plus emails. I, I wish I could get a hundred rejections back. Yeah. But I've got a, I've got a novel that I'm working on, and um, you know it's just a. What's it about? Can you say? Are you telling people? No. No. Okay. I mean, I, I can tell you a little bit. It's, I'm going to tell you about bit. some other events um, going on. Uh, there is a right now it's tentatively titled The Book of April Roger. 30th. And The Book of Roger is, um, of if you're a map nerd, it's a really famous um, setup right over here, historical and map. Basically what it and is, it was created by um, so an Islamic scholar. And, you know, for a long time, there was a lot of debate in um, the world of map making as to how you orient a map and so like the way we think of things with you know north always being up south always sure. being down east you know it, it didn't work that way and it eps up the proportions of I the map too well, like it, when it you does. think of it that way and so you know people didn't know if maps should be oriented according to um, philosophy or religious belief or actual usefulness so where do you think they landed on that well, they, they, you know, we've we've moved towards usefulness because, like, one of the things is like during the period of um, of um, Islamic expansion, um, but most of the places as they were like going out and, and making other places, um, you know, um, conquering the known world. Um, most of the places were. Um, now I'm now I'm gonna get my orientation mixed up. <laughs> Yeah. But most of the places I think were, were north. Yeah, most of the places that they went out into were like, you know, north. All right, so of where all of it starts. The results and are so in. when and um, I'm you had all these really good map makers go um, at the time because, you know, they needed to figure out how to get places. But, you know, our whole world is, you know, right. what you think of the world is flipped upside down because um, Mecca was always on top. Right. Um, and so my, my novel's not about that at all. So for third place, <laughs> we have got Melissa. It's just, in, but but it's inspired by that. It's it's basically about um, a young kid who's growing up in a very um, rural place in a really strict religious environment who just senses there's something wrong. And the best way to describe it is to say he's trying to figure out which way is up. <laughs> And so that's the connection and it has to the book. Place, Roger really is confused about orientation, but not in the way we usually talk about gender orientation right. or or whatever. He's just he just Thank knows that he doesn't fit, and he's trying to figure out everybody which way is up. And so I use I use that map as a, a metaphor in a lot of ways, but, uh, but yeah. Are you done with it, or like, where are you in? Where where are you in the process? Okay, oh, no, 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 it's 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 actually still in the um, oh, wake up price. in the middle of night and making notes phase. So there's you know a, a, a loose outline, which is more of it's just you know, sets of descriptions of scenes. And yeah, I mean that's that, that's really the next big project that I'm I'm about to, to crank up. And, yeah. And I don't know if this is going to happen, but as I said at the practice the other night when we realized that it's the 20th anniversary, 
anniversary. There's some talk of like maybe doing another recording, a 25th anniversary, because you know the folks are clamoring for that sure. next Papa Dops West Coast turnaround. What most bands would do is like whatever record you put out 25 years ago, you would play that in its entirety, like start to finish. That would be the that's the 25th anniversary move, dude. Yeah. Well, our, our first and only record, uh, Greatest Hits Volume Two. Signing off. Maybe we'll do the early years this time. Yeah. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Start to finish, you got to play it in order. That's how they do it. Is that okay? Tons of bands are doing that. Yeah. Well, well, we'll do that then. You know, I, I really do like that record, but there's there are so many songs on it that we just haven't played in so long. We would actually have to practice. Well. No, it might be fun. You said you you said you enjoy practice. I, I do. I, I do um, because even though we don't knock them back like we used to, we really haven't lost that feeling of being a, a drinking club with a little with a little music problem. Yeah. Because um, it really is. It's like it's like a hangout, and at some point in time, we we make a little progress. But you know, it's mostly just talking dirty, and embarrassing each other. Yeah, yeah, like any band. Yeah, right. Well, Chris, yes, anything sir. else you want to get in there before I, before I let you go shop some more? Uh, well, I, I'm sure that you'll probably be out before June 15th. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, if you want to come see the, the kind of honky-tonk rave-ups that we do, we're playing. We have we have uh, kind of a big public gig on June 15th. We're going to play The Grove out of G-Pack. Oh, that's, that's big stuff. That, well, it is. I, I'm actually really proud that we can go from, you know, little roadhouses on Highway 51 to, to The Grove and G-Pack. That's I, super I, cool. I, I, yeah, I feel like we're a band that walks. Be a little bit high. Yeah. I'm not trying to discourage anybody from going out. Yeah, well, you know, I probably won't be wearing my, my Gabardine Western wear for that show. <laughs> no shorts on stage, though, still. That's a rule. Right? Is that not a rule for... That's a rule for me. Is that a rule for you? Uh... Well, it's, it's sometimes hard to keep John Stivers from wearing shorts, but it's, that is mostly a rule uh, in the conversation that got us talking about all of this. It came up one time. We played a summer gig at uh, some house in Midtown, and they put us in a, a shed, and I was apparently wearing a, a sleeveless shirt, cut-off shorts, and cowboy boots. I, I don't really remember that outfit. I mean, but, in uh, the shed, you know. It was when in shed. Like I said, I don't really remember that gig, but well, I don't really remember that outfit, but I remember the gig, and I remember it being on his murder. Yeah. 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 All right. That's Chris it. Davis. Come see us on the 15th. And uh, the Dolly Parton thing on April 15th, if, if this comes out in time. I think it's April 16th. April 16th. June 15th. There we go. There you go. What he said. What I said. Thank we, you, Which Chris. is probably wrong. Thank you, JD. Happy to do it. by J.D. Rieger, associate producer Eric Wilson. The opening theme is Arthur with two H's. The closing theme is Joey Pegram of Shabadoo. For more episodes, music, and other fine podcasts, visit backtothelight.net.